deals in money. We are constantly seeking deals in money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors. And you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial for a limited time. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Subscribe to the, you are the average of the five people you hang out with. If I had known that 20 years ago, I would have made a lot of different choices and hung out with a lot of different people. Best ever listeners, I'm excited to introduce you to our newest host, that we're bringing on to the team. His name is Slocum Reed. Along with myself and Ash, Slocum will be providing value to every interview he does. I've known Slocum for years and I've watched his portfolio continue to grow. He currently owns and operates 65 units, including converting three units into an office building. So he's an owner operator. He's coming from certainly a different perspective than I have. I know he's going to bring his expertise and cut through the fluff and get the best real estate investing advice ever for you. So welcome, Slocum Reed. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Mason Moreland. Mason is joining us from Midland, Texas. He's the managing partner at Texas Vine Country, or TVC, which raises capital for, develops, and operates large mechanized wine grape vineyards in Texas. They currently GP almost 16 million in vineyards held by TVC and have another 13 and a half million in vineyards syndicated that are currently in development. Mason, can you start us off a little bit more about your background? Sure. I got a sort of a, a long winding road to get where I've been at like everybody else. But first off, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be on chat with you. So my background is as a biologist. Grew up thinking I was going to be Steve Irwin. Long story short, didn't want to be chasing grant money or be a professor for the rest of my life. So I switched majors, also a Texas Tech alum like, like Joe, and switched to what I like to call uh, fondly uh, applied rednecking. So professional rednecking, it's a wildlife management conservation biology. So 
I really got into environmental consulting from there, but my story with real estate really started right as I graduated from college, started investing in single family homes and started investing more importantly with my brother and my dad. So that was really big for me. But uh, fast forward almost a decade, I've been underwriting every kind of asset you can imagine, every kind of business type, but still really passionate about the land and kept trying to find ways, okay, how can I live on 15 acres with a vineyard and house hack vineyard hack the house, right? You know, like cash flow the house with the vineyard. Started underwriting it. And I was like, man, this just doesn't work. It's so expensive. And that's when I started networking really hard and started learning about, okay, what are people doing to make this economic in California? And they're just operating on a completely different style. They're not doing 15, 50 acres. They're doing 500 acres and they're doing it all with machines. They're doing touch-free vineyards and things like that. None of this hand labor stuff that we do here in Texas most of the time. Gotcha. So through that networking, you started discovering opportunities to get into that yourself. When did you GP your first vineyard deal? The first one we did, we actually did as a JV. So we didn't syndicate the first one. And that was really strategic, right? Because as you probably know, it takes a long time for permanent crops to grow, right? You don't plant a, a grapevine, you don't get grapes that year. It's a couple of years down the road. So it takes a lot of time. So we really wanted to do it in real life, right? Show what we're doing, um, put our own money and land and time on the line, and then bring that to market, right? As an experience before we try to GP something. So our first one that we've syndicated was this past year. And that's the one that's currently under construction now. The one before that was JV. And that was done between my family, our vineyard management partner, and then another farming family out here. Gotcha. And how large was that first deal that you JV'd? You said, you know, the people who are having success in this space are doing 500 acre vineyards. How big was your first one? So our first one, I think it lands somewhere in the top five vineyards in the state of Texas as far as size. It is 350 net acres right now under vine. So that puts us about second, third, somewhere in there as far as total acres in the state of Texas. California scale is a lot different. You know, they've got sure. something like 980,000 acres under vine and Texas has like 7,000 currently or something like that, six to seven. Mason, there are a couple of different directions I want to head in with this conversation. The first thing I want to do is I want to make it approachable and more relatable to our best ever listeners. So it sounds like your deals are development deals. So you're not buying currently operating vineyards, you're buying land, possibly raw land that has the potential to be developed into a vineyard. And again, Mason, I like to make assumptions and let you correct me where I'm wrong to keep the conversation flowing. So please disagree with me, correct me whenever you need to. Not going to take it personally. That's what our listeners are here for. Let's talk about this by comparison to a typical development opportunity. You said you underwrote a whole bunch of different kinds of deals. So hopefully you have some good underwriting experience to work from here. It sounds like we can compare these to development deals where someone buys raw land for the sake of putting a commercial real estate asset on it and executing on a business plan. So let's make a couple of comparisons here. First of all, the 350-acre vineyards you guys have currently, this valuation in our notes of 15 and three quarters million dollars, is that how much has gone into it? Is that what it's currently worth? No, that's actually part of the beauty of a development play. If you're doing it right, you're putting in X dollars 
and you're getting out of value because of your time and your expertise and everything and your due diligence on the site selection of X plus whatever. So that's the big benefit of uh, what we do, right? Because we do all of our contracting in-house, everything like that, all of our labors all in-house. So, you know, where somebody else might get just the trellises for say $2,500 an acre out here, we are able to do it for say 1500 So a $1,000 less an acre or less just on the labor side, not to mention materials. So materials markups, we get it directly. Uh, but yeah, it's very, a- very comparable to development. Yeah. So there's a commonality with other asset classes, make construction more affordable by bringing it in house. Just under 16 million. Is that how much you have in the deal or is that how much it's worth now? How much it's worth now? Yeah. What we have in the deal is definitely less than that. Like I said, that's the beauty of development, right? You end up with with more than you started with. It is very comparable to a development play where you have the construction in-house. Mason, how is that valuation determined? What I want to hear you say is it's a factor of a cap rate because that's what's most relatable, but how is that the number that was arrived at? So vineyards, especially in Texas, are a little bit different than necessarily vineyards everywhere just because there's less. So if you're looking in California, you're actually going to find a lot of comps. So you can look at it from a comp perspective. In the state of Texas, especially, it's agriculture, right? They're considering this an ag deal, which is essentially a commercial real estate deal. So what they look at is exactly that. They're looking at what kind of capital does this produce? And vineyards, they spin off a lot of capital. Once they get going, they spin off a lot of cash. They do typically use a blended appraisal, especially in the early years of the vineyard with both the sort of market rate, what do people want it? And then also what it's going to produce. So if you're looking at appraising a vineyard that's kind of in years zero to three or four before it's in full production, they're going to use some kind of blended appraisal there for the value. What year is your current vineyard in? All of them. We've got vines of all different ages. So we've got uh, some that's up to seven years old, uh, some that are just going into their third leaf right now. And then we're also planting. Gotcha. So a blended crop a blended cap rate, what's that cap rate going to look like? So the cap rate itself, if you look on an entity level, it's a little bit absurd, which is why it makes for a good target for, for syndicating, right? You actually have some meat on the bone there to, to spin off to your, to your investors, but it's, it's well north of 10. Gotcha. Well, north of 10, meaning like 10.5 or meaning like what? You're looking like more in your, your 20s. Like it's, it's really good. Um, a 20 so, cap. Yeah, they spin off a lot of cash flow. So for the actual purchase valuations currently, they're typically being valued at around thirty dollars to $45,000 an acre. And the typical actual capital input for us is usually around fifteen dollars to $20,000 an acre. Uh, it just depends on steel prices. This year has been ridiculous, right? You know, it seems steel literally double one to 1.5 times. Gotcha. So you said your cost per acre developed is going to be between 60000 and 80,000? No, per acre. So uh, the, the actual valuation of them is typically around 30 to 45. Our actual costs, our input costs on labor, materials, and everything like that, land is typically more around that like 15 to 20 full up. So that's to get it from start to finish, essentially, right? So buy the vines, buy all the pieces, get them all the way up to production. So we come in there with the built in equity of that spread already. Typically, I don't actually like to look at the vineyards with cap rate. I don't think it's as good of a metric to look at them with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let me give you my assumption. You correct me where I'm wrong. The standard point of comparison for this show for non-apartment syndications is apartment syndication. 
because that's what the majority of syndicated commercial real estate deals are apartment syndications. And that's what the majority of our best server listeners are involved in. So what I'm hearing is you raise capital, you buy, you build. There is a waiting period of three years minimum before you're in a position to produce cash flow because it's three years minimum before you have the grapes that you need to make the wine. But when you get into those years, four, five, six, seven, the cash flow that you're producing is absolutely tremendous. So it's a waiting game for your investors, but when they get to the later years, you don't like cap rate, but you said 20 cap. So obviously, hey, I, I may be like yeah. misplacing numbers here. I guess the best way to look at it to, to get apples to apples, and this is usually the best totally. way that I can explain it, is um, you're looking at different hold periods, obviously, right? So it's more like you'd be looking at a 10-year time frame for getting a good number of averaging it out because your year-to-year annualized cash-on-cash return looks silly, right? It's like 20 or 30% plus. Usually, it's in the high 20s. So if you go to somebody and say, hey, I can offer you 30% cash on cash return, that's not accurate. That's just flat out lie because it only comes in years five and beyond. So you really have to blend that across those years where you're not doing anything. So that's where IRR comes in. And I think IRR is probably the better term to look at it. And on IRR, we're looking at 16, 17% IRR. So it's very competitive with, with uh, that's, family on that front. And that's underwriting to a 10-year hold. Correct. Yeah. We aim ourselves to be very attractive for acquisition, right? We act like the big California buyers would as far as our operations and design. But our main exit strategy is to hold and cash flow and redevelop. So we actually have holdbacks built into all those different years to retain capital for redeveloping the vineyard again once it gets aged out. So you're underwriting to a 10-year hold. Is the plan to sell after 10 years? Definitely not. The plan is to provide as many exit strategies for ourselves as we can. So our focus is definitely hold and cash flow and operate. But by doing that, we can also make ourselves an attractive acquisition target by modeling our operations and our actual design of our vineyards, like the really large players on the West Coast, the Wine Group, Gallo, Diageo, all those folks that are operating these big, the stuff you see on every store shelf. Gotcha. Absolutely. I was just thinking if it takes three to five years to get running, why would you sell after 10? But you would only sell after 10 if you had modeled your business to imitate what the major players in the space, the the quote unquote institutional vineyards are doing to make yourself look like a juicy acquisition. And, And if you receive an offer, you can't refuse, you don't refuse it. But man, I'm a buy and hold investor. And when you talk about those cash flow investors, man, I'm the guy who doesn't mind waiting a few years if the cash flow is going to be absurd from then on forever. So thinking about raising capital for these deals, are they structured such that you have the potential for a cash out refinance in those later years? And for our listeners who are only listening, Mason is already nodding. So I'll go ahead with my follow-up question. When you refinance, Are you refinancing your LPs out of the deal or are you keeping them with you in continued ownership of the asset? Yeah, I could see the wheels turn in your head. That's exactly what we plan. So just like I said earlier, right? They treat these more like commercial assets once they're up and producing because it's, it's just a commercial agricultural asset. 
So typically what we model is, is a, a refi in like year eight or nine. Once you've got a good track record built up, okay, here's the production, here's the cash flow numbers. Then you go out and get a new loan based on that valuation. I get a nice tax advantage capital distribution to your, your investors and you keep them in the deal. So your cash flow levels on a year to year basis go down because you've increased the debt. But in general, it boosts returns, uh, provides some additional capital to save for redevelopment in the future. With what we do, we focus really heavily on producing the highest yield at the highest quality we can. And doing that, the vines can only do that for a certain number of years. So we have to plan for years 20 to 30 in that range. We have to start replanting vines and, and freshening things back up again. As a buy and hold investor... I get excited whenever anyone mentions that they're planning for years 20 through 30. <laughs> that of a lot of people scale, right? Like <laughs> I'm sitting here like figuring out, okay, how do I get this set up to have either my kids or the, whoever the next manager is to, to have a really great asset to keep bringing for our investors, kids, kids. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Invest investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Point of comparison, Mason, for my buy and hold Burr style investing. One of the struggles I have personally with underwriting to the five-year hold is that years one and two for me are a grind and I don't make any money. But after that, I've got a, a high quality set it and forget it cash flowing asset that I don't want to give up, especially if I can cash out all of my initial capital and possibly more. It sounds like what you have here with this vineyard, with these vineyards in Texas is a more prolonged, higher cash flow version of that, where you got to get to year four or five before you're seeing cash flow. But man, the returns after that are phenomenal. So let's talk about potential downsides. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah absolutely. There, there, there are two major things that come to mind here. Let me start by saying when it comes to downsides, the first question I have, the place my mind immediately goes is risk. Whenever there's typically higher cash flow or really high returns, there's some sort of risk associated with that. 
So the first thing that comes to mind is economic factors that impact vineyards. You may disagree, Mason, but wine is not a basic human need. No. The way that apartments are. So there is the possibility for heavy fluctuations in the demand for wine. Of course, it's April 2022. We're coming on two years of COVID. There's been plenty of wine consumption the last couple of years. Demand has skyrocketed. But when you're creating this business plan, how do you factor for the potential volatility and the demand for the product that you're producing? So I guess on the front end on risk, the way I look at risk, you've got a couple different factors, right? You've got the likelihood of the risk occurring, and then you've got to multiply that by the time, right? Because there's a time function of that. So if you're holding an apartment building for three years and it's in a flood zone, you're going to factor that in differently if you're planning to hold an apartment for 80 years in a flood zone. More likely, if you're in a 100-year flood zone, you're holding it for 80 years, the chances that you're going to get flooded are a little bit higher on that than a five-year hold. So that's one of the factors that's big with vineyards. It's like you said, it's, it's a long hold period. So you have to factor in that a lot of those risks will happen at some point or may happen at some point. And for us, the biggest risks are definitely weather by far, far and away. Uh, on the demand side, Texas right now, we only produce about half of the fruit that we actually consume in Texas winemaking. So the other half, they actually have to truck in. So they have to get it made into bulk wine that's stabilized and truck it all in from California and then finish it here. There's a big push uh, legally in the state of Texas to completely remove the ability to have any non-Texas wine at Texas marked bottles. So that's actually a big tailwind for us right now on the, on the market demand side. But what we've seen trending is that Texas, we, we can't get enough fruit, right? We're at about 50% of what we need. So prices are two to four times more than they are in California per ton right now, just to like for the same quality to show you kind of where we're at in the market demand side of things. So we've got a lot of room uh, to make that up. But on the weather side, this is actually one thing I think is really cool about agriculture and not, not just grapes, but any, any sort of agricultural investment. On any of your multifamily deals or single family deals, have you ever shopped for vacancy insurance? Vacancy insurance. No, I haven't. Exactly. <laughs> so for crops, we can insure the production of that, right? So we can actually uh, hedge our bets. Um, so particularly for weather risks, you know, you got things like early and late freezes, hail, windstorms, tornado, all those kind of things that can knock yield off for a year. What we can do is we can go and pay a premium to actually insure up to 75% um, of that production. So we kind of lock in how much we're going to get in revenue. Yeah, it's, a, it's an enormous cost. Like it's, uh, I want to say like five or $600,000 a year for some of these blocks that we do. So it's, it's pretty big cost, but it's, it's definitely well worth it to cover that risk. You've already transitioned to my next question. When it comes to risk, I will say you spent some time talking about weather without using the words climate change. A lot of investors, especially best ever listeners, are familiar with the changing landscape of insurance due to climate change. And I don't think any American adult has made it through the last two years without hearing a story about a snowstorm or an ice storm in Texas that Texas was not ready for. February was fun. Right. It's interesting. It's a fun well, uh, famed St. Valentine's Day that day. So ease my concerns here, Mason. If I were a limited partner in a vineyard syndication in Texas, I don't want to hear my operator say February was really fun. Valentine's Day was tough because of the weather. 
So you said this is something that you can insure against. That definitely helps for sure. Do you have any data for how climate change has specific to Texas has impacted the potential for growing grapes? Yeah, and I can speak to February 14th too, a little bit more on that that deep freeze we had. We got down to about negative five and I can count the number of vines that have suspected freeze damage on one hand out of about a quarter million that we have out oh, there wow. uh, on that site. So they're very hardy for our location. It stays so cool for so long during the winter. They stay dormant. While they're dormant, they're very resilient. On the rest of the state, like in around Dallas, that area north of Dallas is a, actually a decent sized growing, a grape growing region. They experienced widespread death, over 90% in some vineyards cases. And that was because they get warmer so much earlier there that the vines actually come out of dormancy earlier. So they were already starting to come out of dormancy and had sap flowing through them. So that sap froze and it destroyed the tissue. Mm. So out here, we were just, I hope it doesn't go another 10 degrees lower. That would be uncomfortable. We would probably have some vines getting some serious damage, but I think we only had 10, five vines that show possible freeze damage. We haven't confirmed it yet because you have to cut the vine off and slice the vine in half. So we're not super keen on just cutting vines down willy nilly. <laughs> of course. Yeah, uh, on the climate change side, I can speak to that too. One of the things you can look at is the consistency of, of rainfall and water access. So one of the things that you always hear when you're, when you're looking at farmland deals out in California in the West coast is their water supply. They're having some real issues because it's almost all dependent on the Colorado river in a lot of places. So it's drying up. A lot of their water tables used up out here. We get almost exactly the amount of rain we need for the grapes every year. So we average between 15 and 20 inches of rain, depending on the location we're at. And it comes at the right time. It comes during the summer as well. And then usually we'll have to take a little hit of groundwater irrigation, like in the fall, just to get them prepped for going to bed, so to speak. But yeah, we have real, real comfortable water doing okay out here. So for the foreseeable future, looks nice. Extrapolating from what you're saying, Mason, you can't just put a vineyard anywhere in Texas. You need some particular geographic factors in your favor. And it sounds like you have those in that your vineyard, because of its location, survived the deep freeze better than vineyards in other parts of Texas. So let me ask, I know you're based in Midland, Texas. Is that where the vineyard is? I'm just outside of the southern reach of our region. So I actually live just about an hour south of our main base of operations. So the primary area where we operate is called the High Plains American Viticultural Area. So the High Plains AVA. It ranges from just north of Lubbock, Texas, down almost to Midland. So we operate primarily out of La Mesa. The new base we're building right now is in Seagraves, which is a teeny tiny town, but also out here on the High Plains. Comparing our climate to Houston is like looking at Atlanta, Georgia versus Phoenix. It's way different. So if you've never been to Texas and haven't been in those two different climates, it's a world apart, even though they're only eight or nine hours away. I say only, that's probably a Texas thing. <laughs> Yeah, that is in the Dakotas. Yeah. <laughs> um, last question on this subject before I transition and then head into the end of the interview. Specific to that region, you called it the High Plains AVA. How much of it is already vineyard and how much of it is still available to be developed into vineyards? The highest quality geographic areas for the type of development that you all do. How much opportunity is left, Mason? A lot, a whole lot. And that's primarily because out here, cotton is king. 
So we primarily produce out here cotton, uh, not soybeans, sorry, peanuts, wheat, and sorghum. So those are all annual row crops people plant in the spring or fall, harvest, and then do it all over again every single year. And typical land prices for that, $2,500 to $3,500 an acre for irrigated farmland. And for irrigated farmland out here, we have several, several, several million acres that is is potential for a vineyard. And we probably only have roughly four, 4,000 acres of vineyards combined out here. So it, it's a drop those, in the bucket. Overall. Those several million acres are already developed as cotton and peanut and other crops. So you, you're talking about having to acquire already active farmland exactly for do. the sake that's of... Right. It's a reposition play. Yep. That's exactly what we do. We go in there and especially if it already, you know, we like to do farmland that's already irrigated because it has the infrastructure and it's already clear, right? You can just go in, see yeah. it with whatever you want, put your vines in and, and you're off to the races. So that's, that's really our ideal target. When did you acquire the land that you have now? Which one? The first one or the newest one? The first. The first one that was with our JV. So we came together with a cash partner. We were a cash partner. A land when was partner. It? That was 2017, 2018. 2017, 2018. What return were you projecting for your LPs? Well, we didn't have LPs on that. We had straight partnership, right? Ah, okay, um, gotcha. So for that one, that was about a 30 or 40% yearly cash on cash. So once you take that across there, you know, you're still looking at about a 15 to 20 IRR. 15 to 20% IRR effectively for yourselves. Correct. Gotcha. And that's over a 10-year period? Yeah, that was also a little bit different too because they had a little bit of existing vineyard, uh, some different assets that were coming along with that. So it, it values out a little bit differently. But Did yeah. you have LPs on your more recent acquisitions? Yeah, we have LPs. Speaking specifically to deals you've already taken down, what were you projecting for LPs on those deals? Which metric? So cash on cash or IRR? You pick whichever metric you think is most important. IRR is probably most important over a 10-year hold, about 15 to 16%. And we're looking at different ways to actually blend that a little bit with some additional ag asset acquisitions as well. So be looking for that in the future. Gotcha. And given the way that you've presented the numbers thus far, could the IRR increase if your hold period were longer than 10 years? Yeah, for sure. It definitely increases over that time. I think the, the stabilized annual cash on cash is, depending on if you refi or not, it's uh, either about 19 to 20% if you refi after you get all that cash back out or about 25 to 30% annual cash on cash if you don't refi. Gotcha. Mason, are you ready for our best ever lightning round? Let's do it. What is the best ever book you've recently read? I keep going back to it over and over. How to win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie. Oh yeah. Horrible title. Is, great book. <laughs> yeah. Titles has nothing to do with the actual content, at least the way that we think of it today. What is your best ever way to give back? Through church. Absolutely. Knights Columbus, the mom's club here at church, awesome organizations. What is your best ever advice? Definitely subscribe to the, you are the average of the five people you hang out with. If I had known that 20 years ago, I would have made a lot of different choices and hung out with a lot of different people and tried to be the number five on that list. So I always had people better than me that I'm aspiring to be like. I totally get that. Last question, Mason. Where can our best ever listeners get in touch with you? LinkedIn, for sure. Definitely the best one. I'm on LinkedIn all the time, pretty much. Or at our website, 
texasvinecountry.com. Great. Links to your LinkedIn and your website will be in the show notes. Mason, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well. If you've gained value from this conversation with Mason, please subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this with a friend who you think may be interested in vineyard investing. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thanks, Logan.